The Lord must declare us perfect in his sight through his justification. He must bestow upon us his uh, perfection through his imputation. And he must make us holy through his sanctification. And that simply makes me realize that salvation is totally unequivocal of the Lord. Think of the prayer that St. Augustine uh, uttered as he, this became a reality to him. He said, Lord, command what you will and grant what you command. Augustine understood that in order for him to do what God wanted him to do, God would have to give him the ability to do it. So I think that any time we come to the Word of God to study it, we should take off our shoes. And I don't mean that literally, but I mean in our hearts we need to take off our shoes and recognize the fact that when we're reading the Word of God, we are standing on holy ground. So tonight's sermon will perfectly segue into our uh, celebration of the Lord's table. It is a, a call for us to uh, experience some self-examination and also personal introspection. We need to cleanse ourselves through the confession of sins and repentance so as not to partake of the Lord's table unworthily and garner his judgment. Now, a brief, uh, a brief recap of uh, what Pastor has been doing. Over the last uh, several months, Pastor has conducted a thorough exposition of the book of Ephesians. And I don't need to reinvent the wheel, but just give you a brief overview of what this book is about so that we would have some more context. First of all, this book was written while Paul was in prison uh, at Rome. It is what is called an encyclical letter, meaning that it was not only intended for the Ephesians, but it was also intended for any of the churches within the vicinity of the church at Ephesus in Asia Minor. The theme of the book is the believer's riches in Christ. The key verse is one that Pastor made us memorize, verse 1 through 3, uh, uh, excuse me, chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. There's a twofold division of the book. Chapters 1 through 3 are doctrine, which refer to our riches in Christ, and chapters 4 and 6 are duty, which refers to our responsibility in Christ. And there's an important word throughout this book. The word in, I-N. It's mentioned some 90 times. And it stresses the truth of our union with Christ in his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, and his session in heaven as our high priest. Over the next four weeks we will be uh, discussing four aspects of the Christian walk. As a matter of fact, that's what this uh, sermon is entitled, The Walk of Love. We'll be studying chapter 5. Tonight we'll look at walk in love, verses 1 through 7. Next week, walk in light, verses 8 through 14. Walk in wisdom will be the third week, that's verses 15 through 21. And walk in marital submission, verses 22 to 33, uh, and that'll be the last week. And I would encourage you this week to read uh, that particular chapter. It won't take you very long, chapter 5. The word walk in the Greek refers to our behavior, our conduct, and our comportment as it relates to navigating the Christian life. 
And I'm going to make a brief disclaimer that uh, there are some sensitive issues in this particular chapter, and I will be mindful of the children that are in here. I'm going to be reading from the uh, ESV, and if you've turned to Ephesians 5, I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 7. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or whom is covetous, that is, an idolater and has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them or do not associate or fellowship with these types of people. And it's important for us also to note the therefore in verse 1, because it, it is connected to the last four verses of the preceding chapter. I'm going to read that also, verse, uh, it, verses 29 to, through 32 in uh, chapter 4. Let no corrupt talk, and let me stop there, that corruption is likened to rotten fruit or putrid meat. Let no corrupt talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for the building up as fits the occasion of grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. In other words, the, word of, uh, the child's uh, of God's mouth is to be used for three things other than eating. Exalting the Savior, edifying the saints, and evangelizing sinners. Paul addresses three relevant issues pertaining to the church at Ephesus. Christian purity, sexual sin, and verbal sin. He uses positive truths about godly love, which is the agape love or unconditional love, and negative truths about Satan's counterfeit love, conditional love, love that can only be expressed if there is reciprocity. Sort of a quid pro quo, something for something else. In other words, this person must expect to get something in return in order to love someone else. That is not Christian love. He describes the spiritual virtue of love, which is commensurate with the Christian life. He also describes six vices that are totally antithetical to the Christian life. And this passage of Scripture is just another litmus test for all believers to use as a means of determining if you are truly in the faith. And I would like to speak tonight briefly on three truths that I've gleaned from my study of this passage this week. The first is the pattern for this walk of love. The second will be the perversion of this lack of love. And the third will be the punishment 
for perverting this walk of love. And it's interesting that Paul situated things in such a way that two verses went right with each of these statements. Verse 1 and 2, the pattern. Verses uh, 3 through uh, 5, excuse me, 3 through 4, the perversion. And then verses 5 through 6, the punishment for perverting this walk. Number one, the pattern. are also enjoined to Paul states in 1 Corinthians 11 and 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. A surefire proof of one possessing the love of God in his or her heart is the unconditional love and forgiveness that he extends to others, particularly fellow Christians. Our love for our fellow Christians is the primary test. John 13 and 35 states, By this Love in the body of Christ. There cannot be acrimony, dissension, or discord. These things do not characterize the church. Too often we as Christians fall, uh, fail to imitate the holy character of God. Instead, we ape the character of Satan and the world. When we should embrace true love defined by God, we often opt to espouse the uh, counterfeit love defined by the devil, which is lust. Instead of unconditional forgiveness, we nurture petty grudges. Christ forgave us, so we must forgive others. Because we have been regenerated by the Spirit of God and indwelt by the Spirit of God, we have absolutely no excuse whatsoever to live or to uh, exhibit behavior that is contrary to the holy and loving character of God. We've been made partakers of his divine nature, and, and in spite of uh, some folks who have the wrong view, thinking that we're little gods walking around on the earth, that's not what it means. But because God has fathered us in the faith, we should exhibit those things that reflect who he is. But we are, the, uh, we are also the image bearers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our lives should reflect the transformation that occurred when we were born again. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. All things are passed away, old things are passed away, and all things become new. To live contrary to the nature and character of God betrays one of two attitudes. Either you are a child of God in need of divine discipline, or you are an illegitimate child and God's wrath abides on you. 
If you belong to the Lord, you can hold on to the passage in Hebrews that says, for whom he loves, he chastens. But when you see people who live outside of the realm of that, we can say that they are not children of God. From a human perspective, a child will instinctively mimic his parents. Their behavior will either encourage their parents or embarrass them. Likewise, because we possess the same nature as our parents, we will exhibit aspects of their character, their physical traits, and their mannerisms. Because we have been born from above and adopted into the family of God, we should exhibit the character traits of our Heavenly Father. We must also acknowledge the dichotomy that exists in our character. We have the capacity to live a life that is pleasing to the Lord. Conversely, we have the capacity to embarrass him and grieve his Holy Spirit. And this is what Paul was talking about in this passage. But the quintessential biblical example of, uh, of this principle is King David's character. He was a man after God's own heart, while at the same time, he caused the enemies of God to have an opportunity to blaspheme him. The great reformer Martin Luther made this statement. We as children of God are, and he uses the uh, Latin statement, simul justus et peccator, and it simply means at the same time righteous and sinners. And that's exactly what we are. Dr. MacArthur says, uh, explains righteousness this way. Righteousness is not the perfection of your life, but the direction of your life. In other words, your personal sanctification as a child of God should be on an upward trajectory. We are supposed to live circumspect lives, not out of fear of the Lord, but love for him. We have been commanded to love him. Matthew 22 and 37 states, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. John 14 and 15 states, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Romans 5 and 5 states, God's love has been poured out or shed abroad in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Albeit true that we should love our fellow believers and mankind, the primary reason the Lord placed this love in our hearts, in my heart, and in your heart, is for us to love Him. We must remember that prior to salvation, we didn't have the capacity to love God. We were at enmity or war with Him. We had no desire to seek him. What's more, we had absolutely no desire to love, obey, or worship him. Paul observed the conduct of his Ephesian brethren, and he was very troubled. He observed that there was a lack of love amongst them. He also observed that sexual immorality had crept into the congregation. There were some professing Christians sanctioning this behavior under the false assumption that God's grace would cover it all. In essence, they felt that they had a license to sin. God will not co-sign our sins, nor will he allow us to live sinfully in perpetuity. Paul had to eradicate these problems to preserve the purity and unity of this church, which brings us to number two, the perversion of this walk of love. Now, of course, this wasn't committed by genuine Christians, but it was, these sins were being committed by professing Christians. 
And we always have both kinds in the church. We have those that profess Christ, we have those that possess Christ, and we have those that don't have a clue about Christ. The dangerous place to be in is to profess Christ and not truly know Him. Paul enumerates six vices that were active in this church. Sexual immorality, all impurity, covetousness, filthiness, foolish talk, crude joking. Believe it or not, these six vices plague the Christian church today. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. And I think a definition is in order here. Sexual immorality in the Greek is the word, word pornia or pornea, and you know what that word sounds like. I don't have to repeat that. In a broad sense, these, this word pornea or parnia uh, is an umbrella term for all sexual immorality. But in a more narrow sense, this word means fornication, premarital sex, or sex outside of wedlock. And we must understand that professing Christians in this church were committing fornication. And they were in the right milieu or, or environment for it because Ephesus was a place not only for false religion, but they had married sexual immorality with this false religion. And it began to seep into the church. Of course, they, these individuals were living dual lives, double lives, duplicitous lives. And I'm reminded of what a pastor said a long time ago about the person who lives the double life. And it's stuck with me for about the last 35, 36 years. If you are living the lives of two people, you need to know that one of you is going to hell. That is so true. If you are not living right before God, but at the same time you're telling everyone, I'm a Christian. And I'm not saying a Christian that falls, but I'm talking about a person that habitually lays in the muck and the mire. A person who does not even be, have any compunction about the fact that he is displeasing God or that he's offending God. That person is self-deceived and unfortunately in some settings, Christians will also sanction this and say, well, you're still a Christian. I think of a guy that I work with, I may have told you this before, he spoke fluent filth. He used the Lord's name in vain, and then he used the F-bomb, of course. And I asked him, I said, Bill, you say you're born again. He says, I am. I said, well, how can you talk like that if you're born again? He says, because I know Jesus Christ died on the cross for me for my sins. But that's all he knew. So it's not enough to have head knowledge. There must be a heart transformation. Paul knew that if these sins were to continue unabated, they would destroy this church. Because sexual immorality always works on a downward scale, it degenerates into more aberrant and depraved behavior. This downward spiral occurs when there is promiscuity, not only out there, but in here, in the church. To all and it goes from that to all other forms of deviant behavior. And it gives us a picture of our total depravity. But I don't like that term because that term simply says uh, we're as bad as we can be. I like what R.C. Sproul says. He refers to it as radical corruption. 
which means that we can always go lower. And that's exactly what these people were doing. Because of their depravity, many people begin to brag about their sexual exploits. They draw their words from a cesspool of filth. Their speech is full of innuendo and gutter talk. They make coarse jokes, and the more profane, the better. They almost always broadcast for the whole world to hear. They don't realize that they are ex exposing the true condition of their hearts. And yet they still think that they're good. They're safe. Matthew 12 and 34, Jesus was very clear. He says, you brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now you can say that you are an apple tree all day long, but if you start sprouting oranges or grapes, I think we have a problem, right? Likewise in Christianity, if you profess that you know Christ and that the Holy Spirit beats in your breast and yet you can live a life of unabated sinfulness and never do anything about it, never feel any conviction, never even feeling any remorse, then you are totally deceived and you're lost. Matthew 15 and 18 and 20 states, What comes out of the man's mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. These people were not cognizant of the fact that they would one day have to give an account of every misplaced word. And yet Paul, it's beautiful, gave the remedy in verse 5. It's thanksgiving. Paul basically said, if you fill your mouth with thanksgiving to the Lord and praise, then you won't have time to have your mouth full of filth and foolishness. Ultimately, the conduct of these people proved that they didn't know Christ as Lord and Savior. In verse 5, Paul refers to the covetous person as an idolater. Why? Because this person is his own God. pastor mentioned it this morning. This person literally dethrones the living God in the process, and that's why he is an idolater. He says to the Lord tacitly by his actions, not your will, but my will be done, O Lord. A superficial definition of covetousness is greed and avarice. We all know that. However, there is a much greater definition of this, and Paul used this in this text for us to understand it. Covetousness, in the context of this passage, is referring to an insatiable desire or craving that cannot be met. It is a craving that an individual will go to any length to fulfill. He desires everything that he cannot rightfully have, and perhaps it's another man's wife, or a young woman's innocence, or even his own daughter. This is covetousness. Of course, there's so many other things, but it's greed, the desire to have more. And the thing about it is he can never be satisfied. It's the difference between him and a genuine Christian because if we possess Jesus Christ, the Lord says that with godly contentment there's what? Great gain. We can be content as believers, but a person like this cannot. I'm going to uh, finish here in just a moment. The last point, the punishment for, for, for perverting this wall. 
Verse 5 and 6 says it better than I can say it. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral, impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Many of these people have been told that they could do whatever they wanted and still be covered by the grace of God. This was patently false. They had a false sense of eternal security. They felt safe and secure, but their souls were in eternal jeopardy. Galatians 6 and 7 says that, uh, Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. So what is the application? What is the takeaway of this as we move into uh, our uh, celebration of the Lord's table? How can we apply these truths to the celebration of the Lord's table? First of all, understand that the communion table is a commemoration of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we should first make our calling and election sure. Am I truly in union with Christ? Am I truly born again? Then we must acknowledge that sin still exists in our lives. Also acknowledge that you have sinned against God and God alone. The thing to do is purify yourself by confessing your sins, knowing that He will forgive you. Repent of those sins by turning from them and making a qualitative decision not to return to them. Thank Christ for his substitutionary, vicarious sacrifice of love on the cross. And finally, put your hope in Christ alone. And I just thought it was interesting that Pastor started on the solace today because that's, that should be our rallying cry. Sola Christus. Christ alone. I have one scripture and I'm done. Romans 5 and 8 says, God showed his love for us in that while we will still sinners, Christ died for us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. That's what John 17, 17 says. And we can only be freed from our sins by your truth. Even after we've come to know Christ, we can only be extricated from sin by your truth and the forgiveness of sin. And now, Lord, as we enter into a time of remembering, as you have commanded, remembering your death until you come back, Lord, let us search our hearts, and if there be anything in it that's not like you, I'd even pray or uh, encourage us to pray that you would look into our hearts and see what is not pure. And take it out, Lord, that we would not partake of your communion table unworthily. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.